this is why you have Drag Queen Storytime. Podcasting from an underground studio flying under the radar, this is Dan. By day, I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience, and by night, I retreat into my subterranean lair and dig deep into the thoughts of mankind. And I'm Dave, sitting firmly atop the Great Canadian Shield in Northern Ontario. I'm a pastor by profession, and a part of that includes unmasking the messaging that comes at us each and every day. We will not conform. Welcome to Episode 10 of the Not Conformed Podcast. Well, Dave, today I'm podcasting from my newly renovated and updated subterranean lair. Excellent. Yeah, I saw the pictures you sent me. That's pretty nice. Yeah, I built some new bookshelves, and uh, so the pile of books are off the floor, and now I'm less likely to trip and hurt myself when I enter the subterranean lair. Yeah, right on. You're motivating me. I got to clean up my office because that's the exact problem I have is tripping over my uh, files and stuff that are stacked everywhere. Yeah, man, you better get to it. We need to stay safe so we can keep podcasting. <laughs> that's right. Hey, I got some good news myself. The oh. uh, the uh, Yeti Compass, the uh, boom arm for the mic that you ordered for me, they just showed up today and I've set it up and I'm operating in front of it now. I yeah, feel like a awesome. professional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need uh, all the feeling of professionalism that we can muster. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. So anyway, Dave, where did we leave off last time? Uh, why don't you start with a quick recap of the last episode? Well, last episode, we talked about this concept of a worldview, and we looked at a worldview definition by uh, Dr. Ken Funk. And uh, so I want to review that real quick. Um, so first of all, a worldview is the set of beliefs about fundamental aspects of reality that ground and influence all one's perceiving, thinking, knowing, and doing. So the elements of one's worldview are, are basically a, a compilation of beliefs, beliefs about uh, the nature and source of knowledge, belief about the ultimate nature of reality, beliefs about the origin and nature of the universe, life, and especially man, Beliefs about the meaning and purpose of the universe, its inanimate elements and its inhabitants. Beliefs about the existence and nature of God, or of course the non-existence of God also falls into this category. Mm -hmm. Beliefs about the nature and purpose of man in, in general and oneself in particular. And beliefs about the nature of value, what, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. Now, Dave, we also started to identify worldview change, or maybe we, we call them worldview subversion techniques. And we spent most of the last episode discussing one of these techniques. Worldview subversion technique number one, destabilization. That's our new <laughs> worldview subversion technique intro style, just to make the techniques a little bit more memorable. <laughs> yeah, perfect. I feel like you should also have like in weighing in in this corner with 300 pounds. The theory of evolution <laughs> <laughs> and in this corner. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. And so then we went on to discuss a few other things. We talked about um, how a, a person actually, well, a, a part of that, uh, the, the destabilization, the big thing that we discussed was fear. Yeah. And uh, the the real world example that we talked about there was the women that are on birth strike. Oh, birth strike! Uh, how, yeah. How through fear their worldview is changing, and also at the end you talked about the I think we could call it the authority of the expert or the expert consensus, which um, um, we talked about, especially happening sometimes at the university level. Yeah, we talked about how the expert can make you feel unintelligent. And uh, can make you feel like you don't know anything or that the things that you know are incorrect. And this might destabilize you and open you up to an alternative worldview the expert can then instill in you. 
Yeah, and this leads us nicely into a little bit of listener feedback. Now, we got a whole bunch of listener feedback for the last episode, which we really appreciate. And so I want to take a little bit of time and uh, read one of the emails and just respond to it. Now, we've decided we're not going to include the listener's name when we read the correspondence unless uh, you, the listeners, have specifically given us uh, uh, permission to share your name uh, we don't want to out you. We've got uh, Trudeau here in Canada with his new uh, censorship regimes going into our election. So if we get taken down because of our content, we don't want to out you in the process. Yeah, we want to be very cautious. So, uh, but if you want to share your name, just just tell us, and we can even use yeah. your first name. But but be yeah, clear just what be you want to do. First name, you know, writing from Ontario or however precise you want to be geographically, and it'd be kind of interesting where where our people are listening from too. So Dave, you want to deal with uh, with one comment though that was sent in. It was a very nice long comment. Uh, do yep. you want to just uh, read it to us and we can we can discuss it a bit? Yeah. So our listener writes, "Hello, I've been really enjoying the show so far. It's all been very enjoyable and thought provoking, and I enjoyed the recent episodes on the dangers of psychedelic use, especially." Yeah, we thank the listener for the positive feedback. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So he continues, he writes, uh, I just finished episode nine and I wanted to share some thoughts on some of the stuff touched on toward the end of the episode, mostly concerning the observation that intellectual intimidation is a common manipulation tactic. I think for starters, the example of a university professor is probably the most relevant one, since I think that many would agree that universities have essentially been serving this purpose of worldview subversion for a while now. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, you would know. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) All right. All right. Let me keep reading. So more specifically, it unfortunately seems to be the case that the given scenario occurs often with Christian families or Christian people, and that unfortunately this is a natural result of a refusal to educate children in matters having to do with the outside, what the outside world believes. Obviously, a fundamental Christian worldview needs to be established before this can safely occur, and even then it seems to require some good judgment. But I've unfortunately seen this caution taken to something of an extreme where a detailed observation of non-Christian ideas, be it evolution or classical literature or philosophy, is forbidden or discouraged. The end result, obviously, is that people shielded from such things encounter much more detailed renditions of these ideas in a university sphere and being bombarded with information and little understanding of how it, how it works or how it connects or better said doesn't connect with their worldview. They end up folding to these ideas in their attractive presentation. Mm-hmm. The intention of such an effort on the part of parents is good, and the matter needs to be handled with delicacy, certainly, but the end result is clearly not good. And it seems a bit naive to expect to live in a world without an understanding of how the world works or what it believes. Yeah, we thank the listener for making these very important points. It sounds like he's writing from a Christian perspective. And uh, I completely agree, and Dave, you probably do too, that it's important for young Christians to be exposed to the various ideas and worldviews that are out there. Uh, Sheltering young people from non-Christian views is not a great strategy because it creates the conditions for worldview destabilization which may occur when they come in contact with unexpected alternative and challenging views. Um, I I think ignorance always puts a person at a disadvantage. Absolutely. And as the listener writes, a better strategy is to establish first uh, a Christian worldview. And then from that foundation, one can gain an understanding of alternative worldviews and then properly deconstruct them. Everybody is always operating from some worldview. If you're, say, a Christian family and you decide, oh, we're not going to, you know, inculcate the Christian worldview, somebody else is going to bring in some other worldview. And then ultimately, uh, the young people are going to be working from that worldview. 
there's no neutrality. There's no neutral worldview, right? So you might as well start with the Christian one and then build from there. That's right. And this is, in fact, precisely why it's important for our listeners to share our podcast, because our goal is to provide our listeners with tools they can use to deconstruct various worldviews they will encounter. This is the Not Conform Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. Notconform.show. All right, so our listener then goes on to write the following. As well, concerning the intellectual intimidation tactic, a common manifestation of it is the use or misuse of data and information in order to silence opposition. It's very easy to use out-of-context information, even if it's actually 100% accurate, and make it seem to be the case that your opinion is valid. However, an essential feature of anything data-related, science, statistics, whatever, is that numbers themselves reveal next to nothing if a proper understanding of them is not supplied. As well, more specifically, in the case of the sciences, the method of gathering data is very important as well. I recall last year watching a climate change debate video in science class presented by my very pro-climate change teacher between Brian Cox, a believer of climate change, and Malcolm Roberts, a climate change skeptic. Cox and those of his camp were insisting on the facts, the data, etc. While Roberts was asking questions like, is the data empirical? Under what circumstances was it collected? Were proper conclusions drawn about it? All of which, of course, are valid concerns and require more critical thinking than blankly processing numbers and considering them to be evidence on their own. Concerning drawing proper conclusions especially, I feel as though most people, when confronted with some mathematical information, such as statistics or probability, are not aware of how to draw proper conclusions or to be aware when proper or improper conclusions have been drawn. This appears to be the case with statistics in particular, which seem to often be the victim of common arguments for race and gender and privilege and disparity, so on and so forth. Um, it, It basically comes down to an inability or disinclination to use critical thinking when presented with information, though I'm not sure which is worse. Well, that's about all I have I have wanted to say on episode 9. Apologies if it's a bit much. I look forward to hearing whatever comes next in the show. Uh, well, it turns out your comment is next on the show. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the listener makes uh, very good points here. Uh, the collection and interpretation of data are key aspects of science that the public often overlooks. It's very important to try to understand and question how data has been collected and what are the assumptions underlying their interpretation. So, for example, uh, the listener brought up the issue of global warming. So let's think about that one. We could ask ourselves when, when presented with that issue, how, for example, are global temperatures measured? Do they use thermometers? Do researchers use thermometers when they make these measurements? Uh, where are the thermometers? Are they equally distributed all over the earth to get like a good index of temperature all over the earth? How are the temperatures over the oceans determined? What type of measurements contribute to the historical temperature record? What does it mean to have a single number representing the temperature of the earth? Does that even even make sense? How skillful are the computational models that are used to make predictions about future temperatures? And is there really a high degree of consensus in the scientific community as is often claimed? And if so, has the scientific consensus view been wrong before? And of course, the answer to the latter question is definitely yes. There are many examples where you had high consensus in the scientific community, but the consensus view end up being completely incorrect. 
So these are all the kinds of questions that consumers of information should ask before accepting various scientific assertions uh, that they're presented with in the media. And of course, in the media, there's a huge political agenda. Things are often simplified. So it's very important that you come with a skeptical perspective and ask the important questions. You know, Dave, sometimes I tell my students uh, that when they're faced with a scientific claim, one useful critical thinking strategy is to ask oneself, how would the researchers have done the study to arrive at the conclusions that are being presented? And often when you think this way, you realize that a definitive study would be practically impossible to do. And this realization helps put the claims in the right perspective. It makes you realize that maybe some of them might be overstated or they might be stated too confidently. Yeah, I think there's a partly a reason for that. If you one of the things that we like to follow is memes in the movies and the TV shows. And one of the things you'll notice is this kind of what I call maybe scientish or scientistic um, babble of explanations. And it happens in all the sci-fi type uh, mm -hmm. stuff where you have this concept, which is kind of scientifically, you know, it's, it's science fiction and you get some kind of babbly-gook or gobbly-gook scientish babble about how it sort of makes sense. You know, we're going to do this. I, I have a couple of good clips. We'll play maybe a little bit later on yeah. when we discuss this in another segment, but uh, the people get used to, oh, there must be an explanation and it doesn't really matter what it is. We're almost conditioned to just forget it. Oh, don't even worry about it. It's just plausible. That sounds plausible. Good enough. Right? Yeah. And they, I think people often think that the scientists will know, right? Maybe they don't quite understand, but the scientists, they know, and this is what they're saying, but scientists often don't know. They're making, they're making educated guesses. They're, they're, um, you know, dry, trying to draw the best conclusions that they can from the data. And sometimes the scientists themselves are biased. They have skin in the game and, they, and uh, mm -hmm. this all kind of affects the, the conclusions that come out. I think our, our listener also mentioned statistics and uh, statistical reasoning. And, you know, that's a very important issue because, uh, you know, I've got some training in statistics because of my field and uh, statistics are hard to understand. And in fact, I find myself sometimes still making statistical reasoning errors. And in fact, that's, that's true of experts. Experts make statistical reasoning errors as, as well as novices. Um, and that's just because statistics are hard to understand. Now, Dave, we also received other thoughtful and thought-provoking emails. We want to thank our listeners again for taking the time to write to us. Uh, we, we can't read all the comments on the podcast, but perhaps we could sum up a few uh, comments that were thematically related by posing the following general question or questions. So the first question is, could and maybe should some of the worldview change techniques, such as destabilization through fear, perhaps, be used by Christians to affect positive worldview change? Uh, could destabilization be used as a technique in sermons, for instance? And I, I guess uh, the general idea here is that we presented the technique of destabilization in a mostly negative light, but is it possible to use it in a positive way? What do you think, Dave? Yeah, so those are very good questions. Uh, well, here's my thoughts. So first of all, I think we got to be clear that our overall goal in the previous episode and in this episode and future episodes like this, our overall goal is to identify general techniques that others might use to change your worldview. And this is sometimes without you even knowing it. So our goal is to make you aware of situations wherein people become more susceptible to having the worldview molded or undermined or subverted. Mm -hmm. 
So that's for, that's first. Now, second, while we give what we would consider to be negative examples of the use of these techniques, some of the techniques that we'll discuss are more or less neutral in and of themselves. For instance, we're shortly going to talk about the use of stories as a worldview change technique, which on its own is quite neutral. Yeah, it could be used so, either to illustrate something that's subversive or something that's positive. Yeah. Right, that's true. And so mm-hmm. uh, in those cases, it's it's more the ends to which the techniques are used that places them in a positive or, or negative light. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, the other thing you pointed out, you asked there, what about what happens in preaching? Uh, what about God using these techniques? Well, I mean, it's in God's purview to use whatever techniques he wants to achieve his goals, right? He alone is capable of using anything in a way that is ultimately for our good. Yeah. But it's important for us to realize that we are not God. And, and it's it's not our purview to push people to the brink or to, to put them in these kind of um, induced positions where worldview change happens because you're destabilized. Mm-hmm. So our job on this podcast, my job as a preacher, is not to manipulate, but to simply present the truth. And ultimately, as Christians, we believe that the worldview change, which we would call coming to faith in Christ or coming to conversion to Christianity, is the work solely of the Holy Spirit, not our machinations. Regarding the use of destabilization by Christians, I think it's useful to consider the distinction between destabilization and realization. Okay, let's let's take a look at the definition. So I have a definition here from Merriam-Webster, mm-hmm. and this is the definition of destabilization. The first one is to make unstable, and the second one is to cause to be incapable of functioning or surviving. And so to me destabilization refers to a loss of solid grounding in some way. Okay, now here's the definition for the term realization. Uh, So the Merriam-Webster definition is the action of realizing, and so we have to look up realizing or realize, and the definition there is to uh, bring to concrete existence, be fully aware of. So, so to me, realization is more of a process of forming a solid grounding. So I think it might be more propitious or salutary for Christian communication to focus on creating a state of realization rather than a state of destabilization. Yeah, exactly. And that, as a pastor, that's my focus in preaching is to help people realize the truth. But I know, Dave, that, that some churches do mess us up, right? Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Now, let me preface this by saying that at some level, every communication is an act of persuasion. That that's inescapable. Everything you read, there's always there's always the communicator's always trying to communicate a point of view along with a bunch of data, and some are better at that than others. Yeah, there's right? always rhetoric involved. Yeah, some rhetoric. Yeah, th- yeah, that's that's inescapable in human communication. You're always going to have that. Now, the other thing I want to say is that as a Christian, I come to the church, I come to a sermon expecting expecting my worldview to be challenged, expecting to have my beliefs examined examined and realigned. And so in that sense, there's no hidden agenda. Yeah. In fact, Dave, if, if, if you don't get that, if you don't have your worldview challenged there, then you feel you like it was a bust. Pre- <laughs> yeah. You consider the preachers good. that you say sucked, right? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that a terrible right. sermon. So, so that's on one hand. Now, on the other hand, it, it must be said that preaching cannot devolve into psychological manipulation. Um, the, the preaching of the law and the gospel can't become the equivalent of Finney's anxious bench, for example. You got to tell me what this Finney's anxious bench is. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, so this guy, uh, Charles Grandison Finney, he was an American revivalist. Uh, he was a preacher who pioneered a whole bunch of psychological techniques to bring about conversions, which were called the, the new measures. 
And one of these was his his anxious bench, where people were encouraged to come up to the front of the church, where they could sit on a conspicuously placed bench, uh, where they could have a personal conversation with the preacher and be prayed for, and and you know have their issues worked through. And often people would quote-unquote, given to Jesus under the pressure of this very public hot seat. This is the kind of thing that uh, eventually becomes the equivalent of, um, you know, the, the altar call in the Billy Graham crusades, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, right? And and especially Finney, his, he departed from the Christian faith in some very important ways, and his, his kind of psychological manipulation ended up working a lot of damage to Christianity in those areas where these supposedly great revivals took place, and they're, they're now called the twice-burned-over zone. Right? Oh, man. Yeah, and it was rejected by faithful Christian preachers at the time, and still is. Like, the, the preaching cannot be simply psychological manipulation. That's what cults do. This reminds me actually of my wife's experience growing up. She grew up in a church where there was a lot of fire and brimstone preaching, and she ended up being always very anxious and afraid and and, and wondering whether she's going to go to heaven or not. So it was, it was, in fact, very destabilizing to be in a continuous state of fear. And she would, uh, you know, uh, say a, a prayer that they told her to say, and she would repeat it over and over and wondering if she said it sincerely enough. And I think a lot of uh, young people faced with that ultimately just get tired of that manipulation and then just leave the church altogether. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's very unhealthy. But, you know, the, the preaching can't also just simply be the Sunday morning whiplash where preachers tell you how, how bad you are, but that it's all okay because Jesus died for you, so don't worry and be happy, right? That's also ineffectual uh, in the long term. And so, uh, yeah, it, there's a lot of ways this can go wrong. You guys have a hard task ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and a couple of comments was not, aren't going to solve it, but I guess the point I want to make is that in the end, any manipulative technique will be ineffective because genuine faith does not come from human manipulation. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to make a couple of comments about was um, the use of fear from a, uh, as a destabilizing technique from a Christian perspective. And the point that needs to be made there is that fear will definitely drive action. And there's nothing wrong with that because fear motivates self-preservation. That's how we're designed. Yeah, there's in fact a lot of data in cognitive neuroscience to support the notion that fear is indeed functional. Um, and so they're very, it's a very useful response. Yeah, and so because of that reality, um, we come across passages like this in the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there's a, that's from Proverbs 9.10. There's a whole bunch of these with that and then a further elaboration. A number of passages with that theme. And even in the New Testament, Jesus himself says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's, that's uh, Matthew 10, 28. And, and the point is this, is when our fears are disordered, when we fear something or someone more than God, then that fear will drive our actions and our actions will be what we would call sinful, not pleasing to God, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Proverbs 29, 25 is, it goes like this. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
And, and, and that's the antidote to all the fear-mongering that we've been subject to in the media. Uh, you know, I'm constantly seeing articles about how North Americans' anxiety keeps going through the roof, and, and whether it be about climate change or, or World War III or economic collapse or, or any of these things. And, and that's, that's the antidote that Jesus presents in Matthew chapter 10. And do not fear those who can kill the body. Uh, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in Hebrews, we get the similar thing. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Mm-hmm. And so when we fear, love, and trust in God above all things, all these other fears lose their grip uh, and lose their ability to control us. That's very well said, Dave. I think our listeners have raised some great points and uh, this conversation with our listeners has been, I think, very fruitful and we'll continue to do this from time to time, read some correspondence and uh, deal with some of the issues that come up. So we, we really appreciate you writing to us. Okay, so having dealt with destabilization as a worldview change or subversion technique, let's turn to some other techniques on our list. Worldview subversion technique number two, rewriting history. So in this corner, (laughs) one very commonly used technique of worldview change is the creation of an alternative narrative of history. This is another 300-pounder. This is a 300-pounder, yeah. And this sometimes even includes an alternative narrative about the origins of the world and of humanity. And that's like the 1,000-pounder. And I think this is effective because so much of our our worldview rests on our ideas about how the world was formed, how, how we got here and even on our understandings of our recent national and family histories. And if you can change someone's understanding about the past, you can change their worldview. Yeah, wasn't it George Orwell who famously wrote in 1984, something like, who controls the past controls the future? Yeah, and there is, if I remember correctly, a semicolon after that phrase, and it's followed by the statement, who controls the present controls the past. So when those statements are taken together, they imply that those who have the megaphones in society right now can reframe the past and so control the future by changing people's worldviews. Now, the recasting of history can occur in very subtle ways by changing small details even, or at least muddying maybe the waters of history. And one of our listeners sent me a link that illustrates this quite nicely. And I got some clips. And here's a clip from a convocation speech delivered by an Aboriginal woman, a poet, and a professor of Canadian culture named Lee Miracle. And this is after she received an honorary doctorate at a local university. I was at, uh, in the first year of college, I don't know if you know, but 1968 is the year we were allowed to go to college. And... uh, I think some of you were probably well past born then, but some of you might have been kids. And the the country did not know this and uh, still does not know this about Canada. So notice that she says that they, the indigenous people, were not allowed to go to college until 1968. But that's odd because here is a 2015 press release from the University of Saskatchewan that says the following, quote, University of Saskatchewan celebrates 100th anniversary of first female Aboriginal graduate, end quote. So that's, that's 104 years ago now. And uh, we go on to read in the article, as the first Métis and Aboriginal woman to graduate from the University of Saskatchewan, 
Annie, Maud, or Nan McKay helped pave the way for more than 360 Métis and First Nation students who will walk across the stage this spring to receive their degree at the University of Saskatchewan. The story of Nan McKay reminds us all that participation of Aboriginal people is a long-standing tradition at the University of Saskatchewan, said Candace Wasakase Lafferty, Director of First Nation and Métis Engagement at the University of Saskatchewan. Quote, Aboriginal people have contributed to the university's sense of identity and cultural groundings, end quote. So, Miracle makes it seem in the convocation speech that universities and colleges would not let the Aboriginal people in, won't admit them, until very recently, which seems to be inconsistent mm-hmm. with these other historical records. Now, Dave, uh, Lee Merkel also says some something else that's quite interesting. Listen to this. I want you to remember that although this country celebrates 152 years of existence, when it does so, it obliterates 4,002 years of Indigenous history. Yeah, I just want to pause it there. Did you hear what she said there? Yeah, we're obliterating indigenous history. Yeah, just the, just the mere fact of our existence is obliterating indigenous history. That's a very strong statement. And a thousand-year-old constitution, which formed the foundation of the American Constitution, the United Nations, and is beginning to form the foundation of Canada. I'm speaking of the constitution of the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederacy, Yeah, and she makes the claim that Western constitutions and the Constitution of the UN were based on the 1,000-year-old Constitution of the Iroquois Confederacy. Now, I looked this up, and according to Wikipedia, this conjecture was made by some historians, but others reject it completely. And so if if the evidence, if there is any, for the claim seems to be very controversial, and it's very scant. It's a few statements here and there by, by some people in history. And we encourage that the listeners actually fact check this a little bit more. But it seems to to me that the main point being communicated is that Western societies, in some sense, derived from this Iroquois culture, right? Like our constitution, for instance. And if that's the main point uh, that we're going to take away from Merkel's statement, it might be worth asking what type of cultural practices were present among the Iroquois to whom we are supposedly indebted. And so here are a few quotes from Wikipedia, and you can just look up the Iroquois and uh, take a look at these quotes, and you skim down, and it says the following, modern anthropologists seem to accept the probability that cannibalism did exist among the Iroquois. Okay, so they, they were engaged in cannibalism in uh, that culture. Quote, there have been archaeological studies to support that Haudenosaunee people, which is another name for the Iroquois, did in fact have a hierarchical system that included slaves. And in fact, mm. they would, I think I read that they would go out and actually make war in order to gain slaves. And it says, quote, slaves were often tortured once captured by the Haudenosaunee. Torture methods consisted of most notably finger mutilation, among other things. Slaves endured torture not only on their journey back to Haudenosaunee nations, but also during uh, initiation rituals, and sometimes throughout their enslavement. And of course, finger mutilation would have been particularly problematic because in, in, in those days, the use of your fingers was so closely tied to your survival. And it goes on to say, quote, initial torture upon entry into the Haudenosaunee culture also involved binding, bodily mutilation with weapons and starvation and for female slaves, sexual assault, end quote. Well, that's certainly an excellent influence on uh, Western society, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I mean, they certainly didn't <laughs> influence Western statements about freedom, freedoms, and rights, right? <laughs> no, no, clearly not. I, 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 we got to be careful with sarcasm; it's uh, it doesn't sometimes convey well in this medium. But uh, no, it, you make an excellent point. These are these are claims that are attempts to rewrite history. But uh, I, I don't know if these people are deluded that make them, or if they simply are doing it on purpose, counting on nobody to look it up and verify these claims. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, this is also an instance of where uh, what you're doing about history is not discussing sort of the dirty parts and only trying to highlight and, and exaggerate some of the maybe the positive parts. And in some cases, actually just make up the positive parts. Um, and mm -hmm. so th this is one of those techniques where you're just essentially recasting history in order to change people's worldviews. I got a few more statements yeah. here from Lee Miracle. Listen to this one. The mm -hmm. removal of a pe people's children, which would was what happened to us is an act of genocide. They came for our children and we remain uneducated, undefeated. They're still coming for our children. There are more children in care today than there were children at residential school. The genocide is still continuing. Genocide. And we need to have a stop to it. So, so here she's alleging that there was genocide all along. And I think she's talking about the residential school system there. She's just using the word genocide to describe that. And she's saying that's, that's still going on right now. So she's using this very uh, heated uh, term, genocide, and then recasting history into that mold. And, okay, I got uh, a great clip about the genocide before, uh, but let, why don't you roll your second clip? Yeah, and then we'll come back to that. Okay, here's, here's the yeah. last one. Most Canadians believe that we take your taxpayers' money and don't do anything. In fact, the bulk of the wealth from our communities goes to you. We don't get a single dollar of your taxes. I want you to know that going out these doors because many Canadians do not. Well, I guess we just want to encourage our listeners to fact check that statement uh, as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so overall, with these subtle modifications and obfuscations of history, the worldview that's being forwarded is that Indigenous people have been and are generally good, and that uh, descendants of European people have been and still are bad. So there's still this genocide going on, right? And this narrative is part of a technique in which worldviews are molded by modifying our understanding of history. And currently, this sometimes seems to involve shaming those of European descent. Dave, this this speech was at a major Canadian university at Convocation. So she is yeah, talking well. to a large audience as someone who's just received an honorary doctorate from that institution. Okay. Yeah, wow. wow. Yeah, so this is you what know, the last thing they're going to hear before they, they leave the womb of the university. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That makes me very confident. Hey, you know, the uh, you're talking about the shaming those of uh, European descent. Uh, yeah. One of our listeners forwarded me an article, which is, it goes back to 2016. And I remember when this surfaced, and I didn't clip it then, so I'm very glad to have received it so I could add it to my archives. Here, this is from a German parenting magazine, and here's the title. Parenting magazine warns blonde, cheerful families, dangerous, likely right-wing. What? <laughs> yeah. What the heck? <laughs> oh, so if That's you're right. blonde, you... Okay, so... Uh, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, well, let me let me let me read here. So, yeah. so depicted with illustrations featuring solely blonde women and children, the report says ordinary parents must take action against right wing families and make clear that their ideology has no place in the world. Yikes! So, okay. so blonde, so blonde children like that would be my kids. That must mean that I'm a, like a right wing nut. Yep. Here's what the article says. The identifying features of right-wing families it contends are that they are inconspicuous, blonde, cute, and engaged. Okay. So if you're engaged in things and you're good looking and you're blonde, therefore you might be a right-winger and and dangerous for society. And uh, another aspect, so this is a, uh, the sinister aspect of right-wing parenting is that they instill confidence in their progeny so if your if your kids are confident oh my goodness dave i think i think and, i'm i think we're doomed i think and you gotta watch out for this one so, <laughs> quote accurate braids and long skirts serve a warning uh, serve a warning sign that a child has right-wing parents so don't you don't you dare have they have neat and accurate braids. They should be have imprecise and inaccurate braids instead, I think. And what are they supposed to wear? Like mini skirts in order to <laughs> not be cast as a right wing nut? Yeah. My goodness. Well, this is I mean, this goes the end of the article talks about this uh this Antonio Amadeus Foundation, which is uh actually founded by this ex Stasi agent, uh, Annette uh, Kahane, who has declared it vital for the European Union to, to European Union to change its immigration policy in order to turn the continent non-white. Yeah, that's racist. So that's the agenda. Exactly. That's racist. Uh, she said exactly. So she said it is very important. Uh, you have to change the educational system. Note that change the educational system yep. and the self understanding of the states. Now this is the European Union, so we're talking about individual countries, right? They, they don't. She doesn't consider them to have autonomy anymore. Uh, and she continues, they are not only white anymore, or only Swedish, or only Portuguese, or only German. They are multicultural places in the world. Yeah. Yeah, the the fact that they mentioned that they're going to tar- uh, they're going to carry this out, this worldview change, they're going to carry it out through education. That's frightening, and actually, it's very accurate. <laughs> yeah, and, and notice that it's it's a rewrite of history that these play the, the, this idea. I've seen kooky ideas about Swedish meatballs actually being Turkish, and and uh, there was a great article. I wish I'd have clipped it about uh, in the UK where apparently. Uh, back in the Roman days, the typical typical family in Britain had you know people of color in it and and all this kind of stuff. It's 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 all over the place. This rewriting of history. But the one I want to go back to, that's um, just you're talking about genocide. Well, I have this great clip of uh, our Prime Minister Trudeau quite recently speaking about this report on um, this this uh, what's what's supposedly genocide in Canada. So why don't you go ahead and roll that one for me? This morning in fact, was another significant step toward justice for Indigenous women in Canada. For too long, Indigenous women and girls have experienced violence at a rate that is staggering when compared to non-Indigenous women. Just over a month after forming government, we announced the creation of a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls following the recommendation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. An inquiry that we launched based on the steadfast advocacy of families and survivors. 
We promised Canadians that we would start this process, a process that would ultimately chart a path for the future. Earlier this morning, the National Inquiry formally presented their final report in which they found that the tragic violence that Indigenous women and girls have experienced amounts to genocide. Genocide. Yep. The strength of the families and survivors who bravely shared their truths have show, has shown us the way forward. We will do a thorough review of this report and develop and implement a national action plan to address violence against Indigenous women, girls, and LGBTQ and Two-Spirit people. Working with Indigenous partners to determine next steps, we will include Indigenous women and girls, the voices of LGBTQ and Two-Spirit people, and family members and survivors. Our country can and must do better, and we will. Woohoo! Yay, Justin! Yeah, now I have no idea how he goes from a report on this uh, Native women quote-unquote genocide and includes the uh, LGBTQ two-spirit people in there. That That's just a simply, we're going to, that's a complete non sequitur. But, but what's the impression that you get from this speech about about Canada, about Canadians? Well, that, that Canada and Canadians have committed genocide against yeah. Aboriginal peoples, and that genocide is still happening today to some extent, and he is going to stop it. Yeah, exactly. And it's important to realize that this was uh, when when... Trudeau made this statement. This was the same week of the anniversary of the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square protests and then the massacre that took place there in China as mm-hmm. a result, mm-hmm. right? So he's blaming Canadians. He put He's putting Canadians in the same boat as, as totalitarian China, um, you know, Stalin, Hitler, Rwanda, the big genocide there, Pol Pot, all of these. This is how he wants Canadians to self-identify um, even as the world reflects on what happened in, in Tiananmen Square. And that's how he wants them to to think of themselves. Which is really weird, right? Because his worldview probably matches those of the communist Chinese. And well, exactly. Stalin, and, more so than probably most of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, by his, I mean Trudeau's, right? <laughs> yeah, Trudeau's, exactly. Now, it's interesting because uh, one of our listeners sent me a link to the Ezra Levancho where he breaks this down. And he actually does make some really excellent points. I'll link it in the in the show notes but Mm -hmm. he points out first of all okay this is not something just in case people aren't aware this is not something that happened centuries ago when european explorers and settlers first set forth in north america right and had wars against the local tribes that they encountered no this is what what trudeau is referring to is aboriginal women who have been killed uh in the last 30 years and specifically in individual criminal acts in the past few decades and he pulls out the crime statistics from the RCMP, which are quite exhaustive up until recently, up until essentially under Trudeau's government, they've stopped taking them properly. But the, the, the fact is, based on these crime statistics, that this is not a genocide, just, it's simply a crime wave. In fact, a slow motion crime wave over 30 years. And it turns out that the people killing the Aboriginal women are Aboriginal men, right? Husbands, boyfriends, uh, family members, uh, the RCMP have exhaustive statistics on this, and 
we're talking about basically 1,017 1,017 Aboriginal women over the last 35 years. Yeah, so, which, which which is really sad, obviously. Uh, however, um, this is not a genocide, right? It's, exactly. It's a crime wave, uh, and it's especially the way that it's it's it was cast is as if it's kind of like the other Canadians, non-Aboriginal Canadians, were causing this problem. That's what you would just infer from what Trudeau was saying, with if you didn't know any better. But it's in fact mostly. Aboriginal on Aboriginal crime. That's, that's Yeah, so we have a problem in this community and we don't want to, That's the, the point is not to sweep that under the rug. The point is, this is not genocide. And first of all, this is not the, this is not the kind of problem that, that I, as a, as, a, as a white Canadian of European descent, um, should internalize as being a genocidal, uh, genocidal maniac or something like that, right? Yeah, Th- it, this, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's clear that it's sort of trying to weaken people's self-identity based on this sort of reconstruction of history. So then we're supposed to put our tails between our legs and then just to capitulate to whatever the government tells us to do in order to gain penance from this uh, historical act that we're somehow associated with. Yeah, and these are like multi-million dollar commissions that are, are milking the taxpayer funding to arrive at these ludicrous conclusions. Yeah, Right, and that's not the worst of it. So money wasted, okay, fine. But uh, it, it's it's the uh, what we want to focus on is the social engineering through the revision of history that uh, th- this illustrates. This is similar to what's happening in the U.S. with the takedown of the statues of the founding fathers, casting them in a negative light. Right, it's the same thing going on over there. The 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 rewriting of history books. So now you you know you end up with George Washington. There's a paragraph, and it's all about his the slaves that he owned or something like that, instead of any of the good stuff that he did. Yeah, Dave, I have a history book uh, here by Carol Quigley. I just pulled it off my shelf. It's called Tragedy and Hope: A History mm-hmm. of the World in Our Time. And th- th- I mean, he's really well respected, right? Carol Quigley as a historian. Uh, I think even Bill Clinton quoted him. Uh, at some point in a speech, but he opens up the book by talking about cultural evolution in civilizations and how civilizations tend to follow these cycles, right? They get, they start out, they get strong, and then they start to get weak and they ultimately die out. And mm-hmm. he makes the point that just before a civilization dies out, it, it goes through certain characteristics. And he says um, that at that point, quote, racked by internal struggles of a social and constitutional character, weakened by loss of faith in its older ideologies, quote. So, so, so he's saying that uh, the at the end of the culture, when it's dying, what you see is people starting to question the constitution of the land and the constitutional character of the land. And so, uh, this would be, you know, along the lines of in, in America trying to cast the founding fathers in a very negative light and then trying to talk about the constitution as being something that could be changed very easily and so on. And then he says, and uh, yeah, so racked by these internal struggles and weakened by loss of faith in its, its ideological, uh, in its older ideologies, and by the challenge of newer ideas incompatible with its past nature, the civilization grows steadily weaker until it is submerged by outside enemies and eventually disappears. End quote. So uh, this kind of stuff is quite that you're talking about is quite frightening because it might be signaling the degradation and the last dying breaths of the Western civilization, or at least a path towards the last dying breaths of the civilization. 
Dan, thinking about this, I'm reminded of an observation made by C.S. Lewis that he makes in a couple of his essays or lectures that describe the impact of the way our perspective on history has been corrupted by the way it's taught, or I should really say not taught in grade schools as well as in the movies and TV and in, in mass media in general. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a quote from uh, God in the Dock. It's, um, it's a bunch of collection of uh, lectures or essays that Lewis writes. And, and um, this one is from part one. And he writes this, it's, uh, I think this essay is called Christian Apologetics. And he writes this, I find that the uneducated Englishman is an almost total skeptic about history. Then I'm going to skip ahead. To those who have had our kind of education, his state of mind is very difficult to realize. To us, the present has always appeared as one section in a huge continuous process. In his mind, that's the um, that's the, Eng- the common Englishman. The present occupies almost the whole field of vision. Beyond it, isolated from it, and quite unimportant, is something called the old days—a small comic jungle in which highwaymen and Eliz- Queen Elizabeth, knights in armor, etc., wander about. Then, strangest of all, beyond the old days comes a picture of quote primitive man, end quote. He is, quote-unquote, science, not history, and is therefore felt to be much more real than the old days. In other words, the prehistoric is much more believed in than the historic. And the, the point that Lewis is trying to make here is that people are effectively severed from their historical roots. They are disconnected, and they're skeptical of recorded history. Mm-hmm. There's another... Um, Another quote, he does the same sort of thing in God in another essay and later in the book, the one that's called God in the Dock. And uh, he writes this, the next thing I learned from the RAF, so this was lectures that he was giving to the, uh, to the Royal Air Force, and uh, was that the English proletariat is skeptical about history to a degree which academically educated persons can hardly imagine. Hmm. The educated man, habitually, almost without noticing it, sees the present as something that grows out of a long perspective of centuries. In the minds of my RAF hearers, this perspective simply did not exist. It seemed to me that they did not really believe that we have any reliable knowledge of historic man, but this was often consciously combined with a conviction that we knew a great deal about prehistoric man. Doubtless because prehistoric man is labeled science, which is reliable, whereas Napoleon or Julius Caesar is labeled as history, which is not. Thus, a pseudoscientific picture of, quote-unquote, the caveman and a picture of the present fill almost the whole of their imaginations. Between these, there lay only a shadowy and unimportant region in which the phantasmal shapes of Roman soldiers, stagecoaches, pirates, knights in armor, highwaymen, etc. moved in a mist. I had supposed that if my hearers disbelieved the Gospels, they would do so because the Gospels recorded miracles, but my impression is that they disbelieved them because they have dealt with events that happened a long time ago, that they would be almost as incredulous of the Battle of Atticum as of the Resurrection, and for the same reason. Right, so so uh, Lewis th- describes this picture where people are anchored in this prehistory because it's scientific, and um, I mean, really, when you think about it, the introduction of Darwin's theory of evolution is is uh, to, as an alternative to the Christian narrative is probably the biggest worldview shift that we have encountered in the last uh, few hundred years. Right? Yeah, the the physical evidence related to prehistoric events 
and therefore related to our origins, is actually quite thin. And so it's easy to change one's view of prehistory just by presenting a compelling argument, a compelling story that weaves together the little bit of evidence that is available. And in fact, Darwin did this pretty much in his uh, book, Origins of Species. What he mm -hmm. did there was just made a whole bunch of observations detailing a variation among different uh, organisms in a particular species. So let's say the Galapagos finches. And just based on those observations of variation and change and so on, he spun this entire story about our origins coming down from a common ancestor, evolving from a common ancestor. Uh, but again, the evidence there was was just very, very thin. Uh, but he made a very compelling argument. Yeah, and, and the uh, the bulk of that argument is really, if God had done it, he wouldn't have done it this way. So it's actually a theological argument that he puts yeah, out. Yeah, theological argument based on very little evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, and going back to to Lewis's point, uh, obviously this was done very well by uh, Darwin's bulldog Aldous Huxley, right? Yes, um, he was the and, grandfather. Uh, so, the, sorry, <laughs> the, the the bulldog was Thomas Huxley. So, Thomas Huxley, sorry, yeah. right? He was the grandfather yeah. of Aldous Huxley. Yeah, our our famous yeah. psychedelic user, author, love your servitude guy. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a familiar, familiar connection here. <laughs> yeah. But going back to Lewis's point, I mean, he, he, he's talking about that his hearers are now anchored in this prehistory, uh, which ironically is much more subject to myth-making than the concrete parts of history. But, exactly. But people have been taught or are conditioned to ignore the evidence of um, the, the evidence-based recent history and to accept this prehistory, which is much easier to manipulate because uh, we're, we're actually detached from any historical events and, 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 and become more malleable uh, to, an, uh, to this narrative about these, this prehistory that's presented as authoritative. Yeah, and if you think about uh, the evolutionary story and how it changed the way we think about prehistory and ori or origins, we can see how profound of an impact that has on our view of the world today, right? Because if yeah. God didn't create man perfect in his own image and instead uh, man evolved over millions of years with selective pressure and death involved in the shaping of the genome, then one reaches completely different conclusions about things like morality, or the organization of society, culture, epistemology, how, how we know things, right? Virtually everything starts That's to change. Right. And along with that is this idea that the middle stuff doesn't matter ever since what happened, you know, since prehistoric man, it doesn't matter. You can just stick in there, whatever fits your preference or whatever you want the world to be. And we see that actually in the, in the way history is taught, uh, uh, you know, my wife's a, a teacher and taught in the public school system for a number of years, and you, you'll see that uh, any kind of medieval history, any kind of European history has been sucked, taken out of the curriculum simply because they don't want to teach the fact because it's so intertwined with uh, church history. So they just leave it all out. Yeah. And, and, and part of that, I think, also is that once you get people thinking along this evolutionary timescale, millions and bazillions of years then this, the current history is just a little blink of an eye. It's just yeah. a little short blip in time that, that is often seen as being mostly inconsequential. And because yeah. there isn't any other force, such as God, guiding things or involved in things, then you can just say, well, let the bygones be bygones. And we're now going to, because you know we make some decisions based on quote unquote science, we'll now do things a different way. And we just have to completely ignore all of history. Yeah, or actually, I just this this is an article I just pulled up. Uh, another listener sent me this. Actually, this just happened this past weekend here with uh, with Canada Day weekend. 
Canadians more likely to take pride in the present than history, uh, colon, poll. Yeah. 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 Universal health universal healthcare and a Canadian passport, for example, seen as very important source of personal or collective pride. That's the that's the subtitle here. So more Canadians, according to this article, take pride in the things that affect them today than they do in their country's history. A survey from the Association for Canadian Studies suggests. Yikes. And uh, one more one more paragraph. We're putting the greatest value on the things that are connecting with us in a contemporary sense. Things that are more current, we tend to value, said Jack Jedwab, I think. That's how you pronounce it. Uh, the nonprofit organization's president and CEO. These are the guys that did the study, I think. We're not looking too far back. We're trying to look at today and ahead. Right. So just sever history altogether. Who cares? Yeah. And it's not even intentional for most Canadians. It's the way they've been conditioned to think. Yeah. Which is a little bit dangerous as we're trying to argue today. Yeah. Now, Dave, alongside evolution and in keeping with our recent focus on shamanism, there seems to be this ongoing attempt to recast our understanding of origins in the mold of pre-Christian paganism. Mm -hmm. So let's put evolution aside and let's focus on paganism. I have a clip here from a TED Talk by Phil Borges, and I think we featured him in a prior episode, maybe on, on shamanism. And the talk is titled Myths, Shamans, and Seers. And he's, he's talking about shamans here. People ask me, what, what is it about shamans? What type of power do they have? How do they get their power? And I have no idea. I know they tap into something. Maybe they're tapping into the collective unconscious that Carl Jung talked about. Maybe they're tapping into a parallel universe that our astrophysicists are starting to tell us about. I have no idea. The thing I do know is their stories that they tell, their myths of the spirits of the land, the spirits of the forest, the spirits of the rivers. Those myths connect them to the earth in a way, in a, such a profound way that I will never know. I will never be connected in that way. And Joseph Campbell, who studied myths and cultures all over the world, said, cultures are created, maintained, and transformed by stories we often refer to as myths. And these myths, the myths have sort of a, um, a neg uh, negative connotation in our, in our world. They're really, um, they're thought of as being untrue, but myths are neither true nor false, but symbolic stories. They're metaphors that give us meaning and teach us how to act. So, some of the myths we grew up with that determine our relationship with the earth over time have not been the healthiest. You know, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the animals. These myths are talking about domination and control versus the myths of these indigenous cultures that are more reverence and respect. And these myths are starting to fray. Joseph Campbell said, you know, Right now, we don't have any myths that are, that are governing us. We're waiting for a new myth to be born. And that myth has to, number one, speak to the planet and speak to everyone on it. So Phil Borges is fascinated by the myths that the native people tell. 
And by the word myths, he means stories that may or may not be true. They're symbolic, he says, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But that nevertheless shape our understanding of history and provide a basis for our worldviews. And he alludes to the Judeo-Christian Genesis story and says that those views are not the healthiest. And he says that the indigenous myths are preferable, they're preferred because they have more reverence and respect for nature. And another key point that he makes or at least that he implies, is that the present Judeo-Christian myths, as he calls it, is fraying. It's disappearing. And this leaves a vacuum which, and I I think he seems to imply, that that vacuum ought to be filled by pre-Christian paganism. So I think this is an excellent example of how people seek to change our understanding of origins of, of, of history, and in this case, replacing the Christian history with a pre-Christian pagan history and, and I think that paganism really is what's going to be now coming full force into our society right now as our understanding of history continues to be reshaped and remolded. Yeah, that's a great point, Dan. I think what he wants Western society to do is to adopt a new point of reference. Yes. And um, that way of thinking about it actually became clear to me when I was reading Castaneda for some of our previous episodes, because Castaneda, who uh, some of our hearers might remember, was a, was an anthropology graduate student, and he apprenticed himself to um, uh, basically an Indian sorcerer, uh, Don Juan, who basically urges him to inhabit the stories of these sorcerers of antiquity, of these ancient Mexican sorcerers, and uh, in order to uh, obtain this point of reference. And you might, some of those of you who are in a, in a Christian liturgical tradition, you might remember the Collect for the Word. Um, it goes like this, Blessed Lord, you have caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. Uh, there's a modern translation that has uh, take them to heart, but I like the inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. And so it's this idea of read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. That's what Don Juan now wants uh, Castaneda to do with these histories, quote-unquote, these histories of the sorcerers of ancient Mexico. And in fact, um, in The Power of Silence, um, the Castaneda writes this. He says, Don Juan explained that it was necessary that I begin drawing conclusions based on a systematic view of the past, conclusions about both the world of daily affairs and the sorcerer's world. Sorcerers are vitally concerned with their past, he said, but I don't mean their personal past. For sorcerers, their past is what other sorcerers in bygone days have done. And what we are now going to do is examine that past. The average man also examines the past, but it's mostly his personal past he examines, and he does so for personal reasons. Sorcerers do quite the opposite. They consult their past in order to obtain a point of reference. And and that, I think, is exactly what Phil Borges wants us to do. Uh, and that can be accomplished in a number of ways, I think. Yeah, he he wants us to change our myth about about history and use that as a new point of reference. I just want to make a quick point here, Dave, uh, mm-hmm. with this idea that 
It's almost like they don't care about the facts of history. People like Phil Borges, they just care about a, a, a myth, a, a story. It doesn't matter. I think for him, the details of the story don't really matter as long as they serve the purpose of pointing people to the particular worldview that he likes. Yeah. And, and so, look, let's, let's, let's move on then into this, uh, our next technique, the use of story to convey the alternate worldview. And then we'll, I want you to roll that clip again to make a couple of points about that, what you just said. Okay, but, but first, Dave, we need this. Worldview subversion technique number three, the use of stories. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and here is Phil Borges, okay? Okay. The, the quote you wanted. Joseph yep. Campbell, who studied myths and cultures all over the world, said, cultures are created, maintained, and transformed by stories we often refer to as myths. Yeah, so do you hear what he said? He said that cultures are created, maintained, and transformed by stories, which can also be referred to as myths, okay? Yeah. And, and remember, those are true or not true, but they are stories. And what these stories do, I'll roll the second clip. Myths are neither true nor false, but symbolic stories. They're metaphors that give us meaning and teach us how to act. Yeah, so they give us meaning and teach us how to, how to act. That's the definition of a myth or a foundational narrative or a story um, that shapes and transforms and maintains a culture. So Dave, who are the modern myth makers? Yeah, and this is an important question to ask because look, if Phil Borges and, and Joseph Campbell are right about a vacuum, about the, the, an overarching narrative of myth in our culture, this is very important to think about. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, modern myth-making doesn't come from, let's say, the pulpit. Hey, I know that as a preacher. I'm very keenly aware of that. Yep. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, I would, I would, I'm going to put out there that, that the, the modern myth-makers today are those who control the stories that we imbibe through our culture's um, what I'm going to call our culture's addiction or enslavement to mass media. So I'm talking about movies, TV, novels, and video games. All these storytelling media that um, that that convey those foundational have the ability to convey these foundational narratives. And, and if you think about it this way, I mean, how do you how are you going to transform a worldview of a culture? And, and let's just say, how can you do this in a generation? Well. The, the easiest way is to embed these worldview concepts that you want to inculcate into the stories that our children engage with. Yeah, and even better, if you can if you can embed those in the stories that the little children encounter and then just continue embedding them in stories that the teenagers encounter and then the 20-somethings, just do that all the way through the lifespan. You can control people's worldview right from the crib to the grave. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's exactly why you have the remaking of, of the classics, right? Because, because the stuff that we grew up with now, we want to pass on to our children. We go to see the same movies and the, co the concept is just slightly tweaked and you just keep doing it. Yeah. Dave, if you think about some of the older classic movies, like think about Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins mm -hmm. is essentially like some sort of a witch. Yeah, essentially, that's right. Yeah, because right. she floats yep. around, right, and all this kind of stuff. And but she's, you know, cast as this like hero example. So even yeah, in these the, in these old, there's movies, actually there's actually um, I'm trying to remember where I came across this, but there's a way for Harry Potter fans to cast her into the Harry Potter narrative. Ah, I see. <laughs> right. Very interesting. Yeah. 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 You know, this is uh, just uh, going back to the children business. This is why you have drag queen story time. 
Drag queen story time. Right? <laughs> you got to tell the audience about this. What do, you, yeah. what do you mean by drag queen story time? Yeah, if you don't know what it is, I think we're going to go down a rat hole if we do this one. But, uh, <laughs> Truly a rat hole. I think and, that's and, right. And we're going to get, we're going to get, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. But okay. I want to, I want to talk about the, um, yeah, we, we should, we should save that for another time. But, but um, going back to this, this uh, young children thing, um, last episode, I talked about how Castaneda took several hallucinogenic concoctions yeah. under the tutelage of his teacher, Don Juan, as part of his apprenticeship to become a, a sorcerer or a shaman. And later in the books, he reveals that these hallucinogens weren't actually essential to his becoming a shaman, but they'd been necessary because his mind was so inflexible, right? His worldview was so far away from the worldview of the sorcerer of ancient Mexico that, that he was having trouble grasping the concepts. And the hallucinogens were necessary to, to shake him up, to give him experiences that would give him a framework to begin to perceive the world like a sorcerer. So he needed the drugs to grease the wheels. That's right. Um, and so in Journey to Ixtalan, he writes this, My insistence on holding to my standard version of reality rendered me almost deaf and blind to Don Juan's aims. Therefore, it was simply my lack of sensitivity which had fostered their use. Interesting. Okay, so so apparently others with more flexible minds uh, would not need them, and that's he shows that to be the case in some other. Uh, Don Juan says that's the case in some of his other apprentices, and it would have helped if Castaneda had been raised as a Yaqui Indian because he would then have then have learned many of the fundamental worldview concepts. Um, that par ways of perceiving and understanding the world that would put him much closer to understanding and perceiving the world as these sorcerers of ancient Mexico. So if you start indoctrinating early, you may not need the drugs. That's right. So in, in another of his books, A Fire from Within, this is what he writes. He says, uh, very young children were given to the old sorcerers as apprentices, Don Juan continued, so that they wouldn't know another way of life. Those children, in turn, when they came of age, took other children as apprentices. Imagine the things they must have uncovered in their shifts to the left and the right, this is the shifts of perception, after centuries of that kind of concentration. You got to start them off early as Padawan learners. Exactly, because the minds of children are very malleable. They're, they're, they're very imaginative. Yeah. Right. I mean, essentially what Castaneda has is a failure of the imagination. Some have even said that that's what atheism is, is a failure of the imagination. Because he, he's got this dogged way of interpreting his experiences through his materialist worldview and the hallucinogens were there to expand his imagination. Yeah. Now, remember you asked me about Castaneda, is he introducing new concepts as he talks about these energetic realities? And yeah. I, for a minute, I had to pause because, because uh, he, he absolutely is introducing new ways to, to think about this. But the thing is, the contemporary reader, um, those of us who have now had 30 years of, uh, of uh, conditioning through the media into these ideas, we're much more capable of grasping these energetic concepts and this worldview described in Castaneda's books because... They have been so deeply embedded and permeated culture through the movies and all those stories that we've been revealed, uh, that we've been reared on, right? That's why we played those Star Wars clips in the last couple of episodes. Yeah. Yeah, the Padawan learner was, was a reference to Star Wars for those who aren't Star Wars watchers. Yeah, and there's a connection between Castaneda's ideas and and George Lucas's conception of the Force and of the of uh, Luke Skywalker and Yoda and and so on and so forth. That's that's well documented. So, 
Dan, in the last, in, in past episodes, especially in our early episodes, we talked about propaganda in the news, and the focus was on on political ideas and influencing voters and public behavior. Well, today, uh, we want to talk about how the storytelling medium is also a powerful tool for influencing not just uh, uh, individual behaviors, but a whole worldview, uh, and, and, and on a very fundamental level. Yeah. Right? For, for our children, uh, the stories that inhabit their minds are going to create mental space, mental room for certain concepts, and, and, and they're also going to close their minds to other concepts. And, and it's certainly been my experience that children that are reared on mass media will have a, a certain failure of the imagination to be able to simply apprehend the biblical story and its concepts. There's, there's a lot more teaching that has to go on in that case. Um, and, and then, frankly, that's why there's so much energy spent on co-opting in the minds of children at younger and younger ages. Yeah, and pulling them out of the houses, putting them into schools, and um, the idea there is just to have access to them early. Yeah, and that was, in fact, the, the, that was a technique of communism, right? Was, Absolutely. Uh, we don't care about you because we've got your children. And yeah. so we're, you can resist all you want, but... Uh, and think what you want, but we've got your children and we're going to teach them how to think about the world. And, and, and you know, 70 years of communism, it, it had an effect. Dave, I have a really good example here of um, how modern filmmaking is used to promote the shamanic worldview. Uh, do you want ah, me to go to that your, right uh, away? Or? Yeah, yeah, go for that. that. That would be good, yeah. Yeah, okay. So this is, uh, this is an example of how the shamanic worldview is being integrated into entertainment. And, and I'm thinking of the DC series called The Flash. Now, remember, uh, maybe for those of you who aren't proficient with comics, um, there's a Marvel Universe, and then there's the DC series, or how do you call it, Dave? DC Universe? Or? Uh, well, I don't know, but it must be, yeah, I think it's the DC um, Cinematic Universe yeah. or something like that. Anyways, the, the, one of the points, the, the, the reason the superhero stuff is important is because if you think about where the money-making is in the movies, what are people watching? It's absolutely all these superhero movies. And there's tremendous amount of worldview programming in these. And we're going to keep coming back to this because because when a movie makes $900 million, yeah. um, like some of these Marvel movies, and, and other movie makers, um, recognized movie makers, start complaining that, oh, there must be some other movies we can make that don't have uh, people in capes and tights. Well, <laughs> this tells you something about what is the, the pervasive myth of our time that people are lapping up. So I'm very interested in these clips. Why don't you go ahead and uh, roll what you got there? Yeah, and uh, just to uh, let people know that The Flash is actually a very popular TV show. It's a TV series. Yep. You can find it on yep. Netflix and people binge watch this stuff. But let me start with a quick synopsis for those who've never watched the series. So right at the beginning of the series, there's a particle accelerator that explodes spreading dark matter. Okay, so this is a scientific language into the surrounding region, into the city. And the dark matter gives certain people supernatural powers. And in the show, these people are called metahumans. And some of these metahumans are bad, but the main protagonist, he's ultimately called the Flash, gains incredible superhuman speed, and he's the good guy. But there are several attributes of this character that have a clear shamanic nature. Mm -hmm. He can run so fast that he can go forward and backward in time. Now, for our listeners, they may remember that this sort of time travel is characteristic of shamanic journeys. As another example, we learn that his speed involves using the speed force, which is the sentient force that the Flash can enter. And in fact, he does enter the speed force. And while there, on one occasion, he goes through a somewhat of a personal crisis 
which is very much like the shamanic crisis. Remember, uh, people in the shamanic tradition, as they're growing up, will have this kind of real conflict, maybe a mental disorder, and then that'll be their shamanic crisis, and they'll resolve, and then they'll gain their their capabilities as a shaman, right? So you've got mm-hmm. the similar kind of idea here in the Flash. Okay, another example. The Flash can vibrate so fast that he can move through objects. And uh, the word they use is phase through objects. And I have a clip here in which the Flash instructs another speedster how to phase through objects. I can't do this. Yes, listen to me. Breathe. Feel the floor beneath your feet. Feel the rumble of the plane. Feel the air. Feel that wind on your face. And the lightning. And the lightning. Feel its electricity pumping through your veins, traveling to every nerve in your body like a shock you never want to end. You're no longer you now. You're no longer you. You're part of something greater. Part of something greater. Part of the speed force. That's right. All right? It's ours. Now let's do it. So they're on this plane. The plane is going to crash into a building. And so there's a couple of speedsters there. And the idea is if they vibrate fast enough, they'll be able to phase the plane and fly right through the building and then save all the people, right? And which is exactly what Mm -hmm. they do. But notice the reference to losing oneself and becoming one with the speed force. I think that he said, you're no longer you. And the idea of feeling all the details of the whole experience, it sounds very much like what, Dave? Castaneda. It sounds like a mystical experience or one of these shamanic experiences. Yeah, that's right. As we noted in one of our previous episodes too, this is an example of breaking through boundaries, which seems to be a part of all the shamanic mystical worldview, right? So they can actually now break through physical boundaries that are out there. And uh, yeah, the Flash does all these things to help others. And uh, of course, a shaman is supposed to be doing these kinds of things to be helping other people. But notice, it's the good guy, the protagonist, that has all these shamanic, mystical type characteristics. Now, it doesn't end there. There's there's another character named Cisco Ramon, who plays the role of the brilliant engineer on Team Flash. But he also has powers that have a distinct shamanic nature. So for instance, he can touch objects owned by other people and enter an alternate state of consciousness in which he sees events in the person's life, present, past, and future. So this, again, is very similar to this shamanic journey or the kinds of shamanic travels uh, that uh, are, are, are part of that whole shamanic experience. He can also open portals to travel to different dimensions. Yeah, I noticed that uh, they cast him as a Latino guy, right? Oh, they or do. No, well, well they, they cast him as uh, of Mexican descent, I think. That's right. Uh, And in fact, in the show, he develops a relationship with another one of these people who has the same power, a woman who has the same power, and she also seems to be of Mexican descent. It's weird that that they do that. Uh, Probably not accidental. Um, But the idea of traveling to different dimensions is, is again, a part of this shamanism because, remember, the shaman goes to the underworld. So Mm -hmm. he goes to actually a different plane of existence. Now, here's a clip of Cisco Ramon describing how he initially was afraid of these experiences, but then he learns to like them. I remember when these powers were a curse. They were a curse. Seeing Thawne kill me over and over, knowing that darkness. I didn't want that. He didn't want the powers. I didn't want to be a hero. Didn't want to be a hero. But these powers were a part of me. I had to learn that. And when I did, they showed me everything. They showed him everything. I could vibe every clue. 
I could preach us wherever we needed to go. I could bring my value to the team. So you notice at first he really didn't want his uh, his powers, but then all of a sudden he learned that they're part of him, right? And then he learned to like them, and then he 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 realized what positive things they were. Yeah, the shaman, the shaman is the hero. Yeah, and and so. Again, it's very much like this progression we see in shamanism. You first start with this kind of disease state, you, but then it turns into this gift that you learn to exploit and use to help other people. Okay, mm -hmm. just give me one more, a few more minutes here, because then there's another character. See, oh, this is all in the same show. There's another yep. character named Caitlin Snow, and she's a scientist in the group who has an alternate personality in her called Killer Frost. So, so, so she, let's make sure we understand this. So she has two personalities within her, okay? And initially, Caitlin didn't like this alternate personality because it's a more, more evil side of her. But then she learns to like Killer Frost, and who, who also becomes a little bit nicer. And ultimately, Caitlin wants to reconnect with Killer Frost. They're trying to figure out how to reconnect with her. And then as you follow the story, um, Killer Frost disappears for a while. But Caitlin really wants to reconnect with Killer Frost. Listen to this clip. All this time, we've been trying to figure out how Killer Frost disappeared, but we've been looking at it all wrong. We've been thinking DeVoe used melting points powers, that he changed your meta-DNA and removed Killer Frost from you. But tonight, you proved that she's still a part of you. So what caused her to leave? DeVoe used a different set of powers. Brainstorm. Brainstorm. All they did was create a mental block. One you broke through tonight, so you can do that again. You just gotta learn how. I think it's time we reintroduce an old friend. Harry's mental activity dampener. It'll help me hear her. That's right. That's my hope that the more you use it, the more you connect with her, eventually you won't need it anymore. So notice that they're gonna use some technology to help Caitlin connect with her alternative personality, this killer Frost. And then at some point, she'll have control of the connection and won't need the technology anymore. They're basically normalizing multiple personality disorder. Yeah, and you'll see that in a bunch of shows, normalizing mental illness, or you could also look at this as normalizing some kind of possession. Ex well, exactly, because right? in one episode, we learned that Caitlin's father has the same dual personality and his frosty side is much more evil than Caitlin's. But here's a clip of one of the members of Team Flash talking about Caitlin's father. We here at Team Flash are sort of a family and you're becoming part of that family. So we would like to invite you to celebrate Thanksgiving with us. Caitlin. I'm afraid that I must decline, all right? Because I don't have a lot of reason to celebrate, and you of all people should sympathize with that. Why should I sympathize? You have lost your father, right? And then you find him only to discover that his body is being possessed by an icicle demon who's trying to kill all of Team Flash, yourself included. Ah. Not great, right? Okay, that's enough, Debbie Downer. Don't listen to him. They even call this situation a demonic possession. And when the guy calls it out, uh, Cisco Ramon says, oh, don't be a downer. <laughs> right? So... Yeah. Well, exactly. These are excellent examples, Dan, of, of, of embedding these ideas, again, in, in the mental space, in the, the, the mind share of the audience, often a young generation that's watching these movies fascinated by these great storylines or what they consider great storylines. Yeah, what we see here is a shamanic worldview being communicated through these characters in mm -hmm. order to normalize 
otherwise completely unnatural characteristics, such as being possessed by another entity or having multiple personalities, right? Yep. These are recast as being good things, as things you want to get in touch with. Mm-hmm. And, and the brainwashing here, I think, is very cunning. The characters start out very skeptical and fearful of their powers. They're very reluctant, but then they learn to accept and love them. In this way, they, I think they're taking the viewer from a position of seeing the unnatural as inherently negative and being skeptical towards it to a position of respecting and wanting such unnatural experiences. So the use mm-hmm. of story here to subvert the viewer's worldview is very cunningly executed in The Flash. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, this and pretty much all of the, uh, we'll have examples as we go through drawing from the Marvel stuff and the DC stuff because they just do such a great job of worldview inculcation. But hey, listen, I've got a great uh, clip uh, that's kind of on the same from, this is not Marvel stuff. This is from a, a, sh- a TV show called The 12 Monkeys. And again, again, normalizing the use of hallucinogens and the benefits that they possibly convey. Go ahead and roll that clip for me. It was the witness. I'm sure of it. How do you know for sure? Okay, pause it for a sec. I could feel. Okay, so I should set, I should set it up a little bit. Uh, yeah. The the twelve monkeys is all about time travel and and going back in time to prevent this giant plague, and over the course of the ep- the the seasons, you get this this character called the witness who is uh, traveling through time, messing with time, and uh, he becomes their their main um, opponent or antagonist in the whole show. Okay, and so that's that's what she means by the witness. And at the end, she'll talk about splintering, which is basically traveling through time. So go ahead and, and roll it from where we're at there, and that'll be good enough. Okay, I think I, I just rewound it, so let's let's. Okay, start that's again. fine. That's fine too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was the witness? I'm sure of it. How do you know for sure? I could feel it. Hold up. The witness. He appeared in the form of Aaron Marker, your ex. Are you sure you didn't just imagine? It wasn't a hallucination. He chose to appear as Aaron. And no, I'm not crazy. It happened. Does this sound even remotely possible? Yeah. There's some pretty trippy shit going on with that tea. They would uh, drink it. And they would see him in their heads. I never tried it. It wasn't what I was there for. If it's the same hallucinogenic Ms. Goins consumes, it is possible. Could be a method of communication. Its properties allow your consciousness to drift outside time. Mental time travel. Sign me up. I told you it wasn't a hallucination. It was real. He touched my hands. I could feel it. He was there and then he, he, he splintered. So there you go. Did you catch all those themes in there? Um, yeah, so... Um, they're using some sort of a hallucinogenic tea, um, yeah, but they refer right. to it as a method of communication. And exactly, they're wondering, you know, there's a debate, right? Is it a hallucination or is it a true method of communication? And that's, they're just trying to play that out. But ultimately, I, I, I haven't seen this, but I'm guessing they're going to settle on it's a method of communication. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the way that the, the show presents it. It presents it. They don't, uh, that, that's just the reality in the show that that's what it is. And in fact, when she says mental time travel, that's kind of what it, what's going on there 
in the show. That's how they're presenting it, right? And later on, it actually turns out that she gets possessed because she she does this by, when she's captured. They they make her take this tea, and she gets possessed by this entity who travels to their present time, the one they're operating out of, and uh, then uh, then possesses her and and sabotages the time travel machine. So so all these themes, just like what you've talked about in the Flash, again they're being presented that this the shamanism, the hallucinogens, the the possession, the the legitimacy of it as communication, that it's real, all that stuff, right? It's all right there embedded into that um into that segment. It's so frightening and it's so ubiquitous. I mean, you can think of some of the other mm-hmm. sort of comic-based shows like Doctor Strange. Again, mm-hmm. you've got similar themes there. He can travel through these portals or something and um yeah, it's it's in so, just so much of of this entertainment. And it seems like we're being fed a steady diet, or at least the young people or whoever watching this is being fed a very steady diet of these sort of shamanic pagan ideas and, and normalizing things like demon possession, communicating with um, some other dimension. This is really frightening. Yeah. So I got another one here. Um, this is a book now. Okay. We've been doing movie clips and show clips. So this is a book. It's by Brandon Mull, uh, Spirit Animals, Book One, Wild Born. Okay, and and this is a, this is the kind of uh, the reason this came on my radar is because I like to pay attention to what's in Costco. If it's in Costco on the book table, it means that it's going to be a top seller, and they're expecting to make money on it, right? So I kind of track what's going on, especially in that youth, uh, young adult fiction in Costco. And here's a here's a clip from the I just downloaded the um, the Kindle version and read the the free stuff here, and here's what I found. So. Today was the Tunswick Nectar Ceremony. In less than an hour, the local children, who turned 11 this month, would each try to call a spirit animal. There were only three kids scheduled to drink the nectar. Oh, spirit animal and you've got the hallucinogenic juice, the nectar. (laughs) That's right. Some kind of nectar, right? So then there's this little, this another little piece I excerpted about uh, the the, the spirit animal. So the other green cloak was a stranger. His animal was not evident, but Connor noticed the hint of a tattoo winding its away into his sleeve. The sight gave him a thrill. It meant the stranger's spirit animal was currently hibernating on his arm. Yikes. So, so this working of these, you know, all this body art, right? Well, that's this, the thing is living, like it's hibernating in the, in the, in the artwork. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting about this, the link to the tattoo, particularly, yeah, yeah. right? The it's, body it's nor- drawing. Again, normalizing this, this kind of basically, you know, what, what I would call body mutilation, right? Uh, uh, and it was for, it, uh, it is in the Old Testament, a, a forbidden thing. Yeah. yeah. And then one more. So when human and animal unite... Their greatness is multiplied. We have oh, actually. I should read this a little bit differently because this is a speech from by one of the one of the um, uh, people running the ceremony. When human and animal unite, their greatness is multiplied. We have come to witness whether the nectar will reveal such greatness in any of these three candidates. Right. <laughs> you know? So the question is whether the nectar is going to choose one of them to carry out the work of the shaman. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, and and the important part about it is this that uh, the these guys don't just create these stories. Um, when I went to Brandon Mull's website and he was in one of these author interviews, he was asked, you know, how do you come up with this stuff? He says, I don't. These stories just come to me. Oh man. Okay, and you remember uh, Grant Morrison? Uh, we I quoted from uh, Mutants and Mystics. 
the uh, the book about um, the the origins of these comics and it's it's mutants and mystics science fiction superhero comics and the paranormal by Jeffrey J Kripal who's a professor that, that that studies this stuff and he talks about how one of the one of the main comic book writers uh, Grant Morrison was uh, he was into all these psychedelics and he had this near death experience where he got sick and he had this vision of a Gnostic Jesus who tells him I'm not the god of your fathers and then he's he, he tells him you know you don't have to die uh, you could return if he was willing to work for us and spread the light. And in that case, of course, it meant him working all kinds of anti, decidedly anti-Christian messaging into his stories, right? Um, so you're saying that the so, inspiration for these things is not just coming out of, you know, the people's minds or whatever. Perhaps the inspiration is coming from maybe the demonic world. Yeah, I believe that to be the case in many of these things. Now, in in uh, Castaneda, actually, in one of his books, it's in The Power of Silence. So you don't get this till like much later, but he talks about how the fact that uh, you know you get the sense that he's doing working on his doctorate, and then and then he's gotta he's gotta write something up, right? But it, he actually says, well, I was making all these notes, and Don Juan actually set himself set me to the task of writing about the premises of sorcery. And he writes, I argued that the suggestion was, was, was absurd because I was not a writer. Of course you're not a writer, he said. So you will have to use sorcery. First, you must visualize your experiences as if you were reliving them. And then you must see the text in your dreaming. For you, writing should not be a literary exercise, but rather an exercise in sorcery. So the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is this. What are our children watching? What are yeah. they reading? <laughs> that's right. Look, if you don't buy into this, okay, that's fine. But let me just, I'm looking for an article right now. Um, just give me two seconds to pull it up here. Mm -hmm. I, I, I forgot to print this. All right. So here's an article. And this is from uh, Summit News. UK police help script soap operas to deter far-right extremism. Wow. According to the London Times, officers from the government's, quote, prevent radicalization program are advising Channel 4's um, Holly Oaks on a storyline involving one of the main characters getting sucked into a f uh, into far right-wing violence. Okay, so y I'll link it in the show notes, but th there's definitely influence going on in these storylines. Now, you can, you, can, you, know, you can be skeptical about it being more deeply uh, subversive as in, as in uh, demonically driven, but some of the quotes from Castaneda and some of these other stories hopefully will open your mind that that may in fact be the case. Yeah. Yeah. So Dave, I think we gave a number of examples of the use of stories to change someone's worldview. And one reason why this works so well, the use of stories to change a worldview, I think, is that stories tend to disarm us and place us into a more passive and receptive stance. So when we're watching TV or we're at the movies we're typically relaxed and our guard is down. And the stories then engage our attention and we become absorbed in the narrative. We come to like or respect or identify with some of the characters. And at that point, we're very vulnerable to programming, which is precisely when the messaging is unleashed. What do you think about that's that? That's right. No, I think that's absolutely true. That's actually the whole design, I think, behind binge watching as well. Right, you remember we talked about last episode about Hitler choosing the evening to do his stuff because people were tired and more open to the message. Well, when does your typical TV watching of these shows or even binge watching happen? Right, it's, it's often evening, late at night when you're tired. Yeah. 
So I think we've covered enough territory for this episode. Um, we refreshed our memories about the use of destabilization as a key worldview subversion technique. And then we discussed two other techniques. So one was the rewriting of history or the changing of history. And the other was the use of stories to change people's worldviews. Um, and Dave, I'm just looking at our list here. I see that we have a few more techniques on our list. Um, and maybe we'll leave those for the next episode. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's probably good. We want to try to keep these shorter than longer. Okay, Dave, why don't you take us out then? All right, so we want to thank all our listeners. Thanks for listening. Um, and uh, you can find us on the web at uh, nutconform.show, and that will take you to our Simplecast show page where you can find all these detailed show notes about each of the episodes and all the links and bibliography that we use to come up with the material for the show. You can also find links to our social media and to our RSS feed there, so you can uh, spread that news there. And basically, the website is the best way to spread news about the show. Uh, and especially since we're doing this on, an, on a shoestring budget, we're relying on you to get the info out and to grow our audience. And also, too, uh, if you want to email us and send us, uh, send us links, that is very much appreciated. And uh, the email there is info at nutconform.show. All right then, Dave, I will talk to you later. Sounds good.